Squire Earl, welcome to Software Defined Talk. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Yes, it's fantastic. Well, listen, I wanted to bring you on because we've had a lot of news and security, and you have spent your entire career working either as a uh, consultant, someone building product, or actually working in security for large financial organizations. So we're going to get into all of that because I think, you know, as we head into the new year, everyone needs some advice on security. But I wanted to thought, you and I have known each other for a long time, and I wanted to start with something very specific. We both share, I think, a passion for what I'm going to call personal finance, right? So there are basically two ways in the world to make more money, right? You can, or to have more money. You can either get a raise and make more money, always advisable, or you can spend less money. And I think many of the times that you and I have talked over the years, you've always given me tips on how to spend less money. So I wanted to start with, for everybody out there, for everyone listening today, as we go into uh, 2021, which of course we, we all hope for a number of reasons, it is much better. But what are some financial hacks, tips, tricks that you've been using to save money that the rest of the world needs to know about? Oh, boy. Well, so one, I think one of the things that maybe a lot of people don't know is, um, with the exception of my socks and my underwear, Everything else that I own is pretty much bought at a thrift store or as a gift. Uh, It's almost always secondhand. All my business attire, everything, either bought on eBay, bought in a thrift store. Now, luckily, I live in Scottsdale, so people over here are insane, and they wear something once, and and then they get rid of it. So I get really nice stuff for very, very inexpensive prices. So I think I was going to go one step further. My wife really turned me on to this a while back. It's uh, I know Facebook is is sort of under siege as people do not like Facebook and I get all that. But I actually think Facebook market is a fantastic place to get gently used items of all kinds, whether it be electronics, furniture, clothes, kids, toys. I don't know. You name it. In fact, it's sort of become like my go-to is before I search Amazon for something, I'll get on Facebook market. And if, for those that aren't familiar with it, for, you can do different things with it. But most of the point is just people list stuff that's close to you. You do, you can do like this. In fact, in my area, it's very popular to do porch pickup where like essentially I Venmo you. So maybe I'm buying uh, some piece of electronics. I'll Venmo you the $50. You leave it on the porch. I pick it up. And I think it, I think when you're in an, um, certain areas, I think because as much as we like to think that we're all different, like everyone in certain areas kind of buys the same stuff. So like That's I find true. for kids toys and stuff like as my son now is, you know, has gone through different age uh, ranges, right? It's just like, yeah, we basically are constantly buying and selling, you know, the age appropriate toys or things that they need. Uh, and it, it's fantastic. I mean, I, we've sold, we bought and sold thousands of dollars. And I think, you know, my general feeling is you can get, you can buy things for about 50% of retail and you can, I mean, sometimes there's some variations and then you can sometimes sell yeah, things for a little yeah. bit more or less, but there's nothing more powerful than cleaning up, cleaning out your house with a bunch of stuff you don't want, but then you're actually getting 50% of what you paid for it. And someone comes and picks it up. I find like that in itself is like, it's just a fantastic it is, way to magic. declutter. It, it, it gives you incentive to do something that everyone hates doing, which is cleaning their place and getting rid of old stuff, right? It, it, you know, we had the whole hoarder series, which, you know, gave you the psychological punch to the stomach, like, hey, you might actually have a psychological problem. But on the positive side, you have motivator of money to get you to get up and do that stuff. Now, here's my thing. I think it's great for selling. Um, but my thing with buying, I feel like I've lost if I paid more than 10 percent 
for 15% of the original retail wow. price. <laughs> I expect an 80% markdown of anything that I buy. Otherwise, it's a loss. I take it as a loss. That's that's how I feel. Wow, about it. wow. You you're listen. I applaud your uh, desire to to go lower, but I feel like at fifty percent is usually both when I because I think there's that I think there's that well known economic fallacy. Like if I if if I'm going to sell you something. And then let's say you own that item, and then I ask you to price that item to sell it. Like there's this huge oh, golf, right? It. Oh yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah, human nature stuff is so much more valuable than what it really is. Like I want to sell you something. I, I've seen people list stuff for more than retail price. That bothers me. Like <laughs> I because I touched it and I got all of my it's, germs. Yeah, that's on like it. a scam. Now basically. it's worth more. Yeah, it's like okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I think that's why I just always generally come back to like okay. If I'm listing something, I need to like have the mental uh, exercise of going through like, am I okay letting this go at 50% of what I paid for? And if not, then I either have to have like an intervention of one for myself or just be like, well, I'm just going to hold on to it until some point. Like, and, and I find like as time goes on and like the thing that you didn't sell earlier sits around and like gathers dust and is not yep. used, then at some point you come to a point of like, yeah, like I'll, I'll take whatever. If it was $20, I'll t- it'd be great if someone gave me 10 bucks for this thing I don't need and I don't want and just get it out of my house. And then, then I'm like, yeah. I'm ready to move it. And I think it's different. It, you know, what I'm talking about when I'm saying 80, 90% off, I'm usually talking about thrift store secondhand mm-hmm. where I'm not dealing directly with a person. I'm dealing with a corporation that's buying stuff in bulk or getting stuff donated. Then I'm expecting that price to be low. If I'm dealing with a like person to person, especially when you're talking about electronics, toys, even medical equipment, like for my daughter, um, it's a different story then because then you you know you have to be you have to understand the market that you're in. And one good way to kind of get out of that that um, problem of overpricing your stuff is to go online and figure out look at the cheapest place you can get it on Craigslist, on eBay, on Amazon. And then what I do is I say okay. How much trouble is it worth for someone to order that online, wait for it to ship? And of course, with all the delayed shipping, you know, thanks to, you know, the stuff going on with the Postal Service uh, in the holidays right now, then I I may put in like $5 extra, $10 extra over whatever that lowest price is, because it might be worth it for someone to get it in town, right? I mean, I would rather buy something in town locally than to have it shipped to me unless it's coming from Amazon and I'm getting it prime next day. Like next day, you know, I'm with you. Yeah, that, no, I like that. That trumps everything. Like that trumps everything. All right, well, I want to throw one more thing at you. I, I, this is a personal hack uh, I, I use. I wanted to get your take on it. Was, uh, you know, I'm always fighting off all the various subscriptions. Like we're always, as a family, we're always trying out new subscription services. That's, of course, the default business model for everyone and another yep. streaming ser- service and things like that. And I enjoy all of it. Like I like to watch the movies and stuff, but like, I hate the idea that they're trying to get me to the point where it's just like it becomes ingrained in me. Like I don't reevaluate my subscriptions actively. Right. And so I think with all the streaming services, they've made it easier to cancel and start up. So what I have done now is when I'm going to take on one that I'm not sure I want forever. Right. I'm going to do like the promotional rate or something like that. What I have decided to do is I often will buy myself a gift card to that specific service. So for some set of period of time, I will only use the gift card to activate the service for like say six months. And then when, and in six months, it forces me because I either have to go in either and active and update with my regular credit card, or I just let it expire or maybe, maybe do the same kind of thing. Like where I like, well, I'm not sure I still like it. And I go by the act of actually going to get another gift card and charging up the account for a few months. So I've been using that one. And it does like, I like it because it 
forces me to continuously have like reevaluate everything that I'm using. Now, some, certain things have sort of established themselves. Like Netflix is my house is like a non-negotiable thing. Amazon prime. These are the ones that have just made it. They just automatically yeah. bill. And of course they raise their rates and I just complain, but I don't do anything. But like uh, occasionally someone will be like stars, like that's one that was questionable value. Oh, so I, that's exactly what I was going to mention. They're doing the $1 deal through Amazon. But what I do is I do what I, I like your idea, but I'd say one step further is, Figure out what shows you're going to watch, wait for the seasons to end, then do the $1 a month, binge everything for that month, cancel it. I think you're right. And I think there's something to like, if you build up almost like, it's almost becomes like a, a, a savings um, account of content where you're like, oh yeah, like, like a lot of people tell me about, it. I think Billions is on Showtime or something like that. Yep. But if you get two or three or four shows on like a certain network and you're like, okay, I'm going to get that network when it's at four or five shows and I'm going to have it for a couple months. And then it's like you, cause you kind of get in there. It's like opening a present. You're yep. like, Oh, look at all this content. And then afterwards you can then get rid of it because I mean, I, I don't know. HBO is like, I like HBO. That's another one that has been pretty consistent. I've been in and out of, but now of course, HBO max. And it's like, yeah, I'm all in, I'm all in. You're HBO in. Max. It's like, okay, but yeah. I, I don't, it's, yeah. it's, it's, I, I would say it's still in the evaluation phase. I'm reevaluating it because of all the latest content, but so much treasure on that. Either it's old shows that I would love to rewatch. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch Curb Your Enthusiasm over and over again until I die. <laughs> Once a week. Um, yeah, and now that they've added all the Warner stuff in there, I've been rewatching like Nathan for You. If you've never watched Nathan for You, it is the best television show ever created. If you like to watch people uncomfortable, because it's this guy, he's this, you know, guy who graduated from Canadian Business School and he goes to help people. But every episode is him making these just ridiculous things like like it's very kind of um freakonomics ideas of how to improve someone's business but they're all bad ideas but he convinces people to reluctantly do it while they're on camera super uncomfortable and then he takes whatever his idea is and blows it way out of proportion makes it way over budget way over complicated and then at the end he kind of says yeah this was dumb uh we probably shouldn't have done this i mean that's kind of the gist of the whole show but it's just, it's just All right, give us gold, again. What's, what's the name of the show again? It's Nathan for you. It's no longer on the air. It's a comedy central show from years and years ago, but it is on HBO max. Okay. All and right. Well, look I, at, yeah, I've been binging it. Look Love at that. It. We've given everybody a great way to start the new year. They've got a, a ways to save money with, uh, you know, buying used items and a way to enjoy scripts and services without having to, uh, you know, worry that they're going to renew forever. Today's show is sponsored by StrongDM. Working from home, managing a gazillion SSH keys, database passwords, and Kubernetes certs? Meet StrongDM. Manage and audit access to servers, databases, and Kubernetes clusters no matter where your employees are. With StrongDM, easily extend your identity provider to manage infrastructure access. Automate onboarding, offboarding, and moving people within roles with the click of a button. Trusted by companies like Hearst, Peloton, and SoFi to manage access, you have more control and less hassle. StrongDM. Manage and audit remote access to infrastructure. Start your free 14-day trial today at strongdm.com slash SDT, all uppercase. Again, that's strongdm.com slash SDT. No credit card required. And of course, we thank StrongDM for sponsoring our show. How did you get into security? What was your kind of entry point to even getting into this crazy domain of work? So it's actually a, a really long, funny story that I'm going to shorten really quickly. Um, I was in school for electrical engineering originally at the University of Texas, and I figured out in my second year that I hated it, and I didn't know what to do. I was lost, 
ended up changing my majors every semester, dropped out of school for a while, met my girlfriend, became my wife. We uh, got pregnant. And then I was like, I better go back to school and, and get my shit together. So I was like, what's the closest degree I could finish? It was computer science. And it just happened to be around the time that the internet was uh, taken off, late 90s. Um, so I, I actually started out doing old school um, registration websites, Perl, making sure that the person who was registering was the right person and then registering them for different seminars and stuff. So that was literally like before the days of identity management, um, doing kind of Perl CGI scripting. But it was, it was through um, getting married that we got partnered up with a sponsor couple through uh, my wife is, is Catholic, want to get married to the church. And the, the sponsor couple, uh, the, the guy who worked there asked what I did. I said, well, I'm, I'm uh, you know, in computer science and said, well, we're actually looking for an intern. And uh, I work for this company called Tivoli. So, you know, fast forward, you know, years later, Tivoli, you know, acquired by IBM. Tivoli became known as kind of the security company. That was my first stint in kind of on the kind of testing developer side of, of identity. And then from there, kind of went to a bunch of startups and mainly did web app development, database development, and started kind of getting into kind of these early questions of how do we make sure that we're securing the information that we're not just handing out the keys to the kingdom to the wrong people. And so that's kind of where it all started. And it really wasn't until probably early 2000s, like around 2002, three, uh, right before Wavesets acquisition by Sun, I got into professional services and consulting for a small company called Neogen out of Austin, Texas. And that's kind of where the journey began for me. Nice. And then since then, you've done consulting at companies like Neogen. And then you've also spent some time actually working for large financial institutions, right? Running yes. both their identity and identity management programs, their security and risk metric programs. So, you know, I, I thought that's really what, you know, is I think is really valuable is that you've been on both sides of the fence. You've both help build products to sell them. You've helped implement products. And then you've been on the other side of actually buying the products from the various uh, clients and then being responsible to use them. Uh, as, so, we, as, we, as we call eating our own dog food. That's right. Yeah. So I don't know, before we kind of go into some of the, those experiences, like which of the jobs, uh, and then of course, most recently, you're kind of back working for a vendor. Like, is there anything that sticks out at, at your time around, you know, moving between, you know, sort of like professional services is like, I got to like, parachute in and make it work versus like being actually the person working at a large enterprise and being responsible with it. Like as you look back on those experiences, there's like one better or worse, or is there like an obvious pro con to each career? Um, I, I think they're all pro con. So, so here's the thing. If I were to summarize um, like all of my jobs, they all in essence have the same function, which is solving problems, dealing with people, process, or technology. Like that's what, all of these jobs have been when it's professional services, it is kind of jumping in and saying, okay, what kind of hell is waiting for me? And, and how am I going to kind of navigate these minefields? And what you end up finding out is all of these problems are typically not rooted in technology. It's rooted in people problems or process problems. And what I mean by that is it's people not understanding where their information is or not communicating properly what, you should and should not do. And it leads to all of these other kind of bits of collateral damage, which we try to solve with process and technology. And we kind of shove the people part under the rug. But at, at a certain point, you've got to deal with that because 
what you'll find out if you spend enough time in security is that the weakest link in every security, um, you know, infrastructure or, or um, you know, uh, environment you put together is people. That, that's always the weakest link, right? It, look at, and we'll probably talk more about this when we get into what you should and shouldn't do, but no matter what you do, there's, there's still that person in your organization that's going to click on the email that said, hey, your package is, is delayed. Click here to find out where it is. Oh, by the way, put in your credentials and we'll let you see where it is. And then, oh, magically, you just got compromised. So, you know, it, when it comes down to it, all of these jobs had that kind of uh, in common. What I would say in terms of pros and cons um, I think what I liked the best in all of my work has been the training side of it. And that's because I like the idea of being able to go in for a week, um, talk to people about the problems they're having, provide a way for them to solve those problems. And one of two things will happen. They'll either go, wow, this is way too complex. I need to hire someone. Or they'll say, okay, I have a better understanding of where things are. I need to hire someone. So, uh, you know, for me, I, it's great because you get to get in there, you see a bunch of people, you get to help them learn, but most importantly, you get out before the chips fall because all of these end up being a cluster at some point. And it's not because the technology doesn't work and it's not because the people aren't smart. It's just the nature of how things manifest over time, right? Good. Everyone comes up with a great idea. And then as they start implementing it and they start making compromises to get things done, what you get on the other end is never what it was intended to be. You talk to any developer about the product they build, and they're usually shocked. And Brandon, you and I you know, know this very well because we met doing product management, is when you explain to developers how customers are using their products, they're shocked. They're like, that's not what it was meant for. I'm like, yeah, well, that's how it's being used. Well, but that's that's wrong. Well, okay, but that's what your customer's doing, so you have to adapt to that. You have to make it better for them. And I think it, it, that's how it goes for all of these things. You start out with this premise that you want to do something good, and in the process of working with people and working through systems and processes, it gets mangled. And what you get on the other end ends up becoming this kind of hodgepodge that you have to figure out. Now, how do we solve this next set of problems that we created for ourselves? Yeah, no, I think you hit on a bunch of stuff. And so, you know, one of the things I want to get your take on was, as we kind of think about going into 2021, was what is the current state of security? So I was kind of thinking back over the last several years, like right now, everyone is talking about the SolarWinds uh, exploit and, you know, sort of like all the problems that are happening there. And so, but I was going back and just off the top of my head, I just thought to myself, like, okay, what are the the biggest, you know, set of hacks or ex exploits that I like just remember just from like being in the news. And so, you know, Target, I looked this one up the other day, it was a big Target hack. And I was like, oh, that was a couple of years ago. Turns out that was 2013, right? Remember yeah. like, they lost all their credit card stuff. I think, can't remember the CEO, but the CIO, somebody got fired there and there was a lot of changes and they had to you know, unpack that. And then there was in Sony over the whole, you know, um, movie thing. It looks like uh, what North Korea, I think yeah, it was like the exploited them. Yeah. And of course that just took down their entire corporate network and revealed lots of embarrassing emails from, you know, actors and, and things like that. So that was 2014. And then Equifax, you know, here in the U.S., of course, that's a big, um, you know, credit rating site that kind of collects data on, I don't know, everyone, at least all the people in the United States. Even if you don't want one, you probably have like a credit yeah. a file there. And, of course, they got 
uh, exploited. And I think the CEO, in that case, I remember the CEO did get fired. I think he had to actually step down. And then, of course, you know, that brings us to 2020. The latest news is solar winds. And I think people are, uh, you know, we talked about that on the show already. And I think people are up to date on that one. So, you know, so those are just like, I mean, that's like really no research. That's just me, me remembering what I thought about uh, in there. So that's seven years right there. So, you know, I think the first thing is we kind of go into 2021. What is your take? Two questions for you. Like one, do you th- have things gotten better? And then two, like, why do you think this keeps happening? So, uh, has it gotten better? It depends on who you're asking. Um, some companies might say yes. I think vendors would say yes. I think hackers would say yes. I, I mean, the the reality is, is um, you know, especially like the SolarWinds hack, does it change everything? Yes and no. Like it, it's what makes this a little different and what feels more insidious is that um, it is the tool that you bought to make sure that your environment was protected, and that was the actual attack vector. So then it makes you think, and, and, and this is where kind of all this idea, and you hear people talking about zero trust and all this kind of stuff, which we can kind of get into, is you know you have to stop assuming that that um, the tools that you use are going to solve all of your problems. Right. They're a set of tools and they're implemented by people and they're going to have the same weaknesses that people do. And there are people who will exploit those weaknesses and that will never change. You know, you mentioned, you know, three or four out of like probably hundreds of breaches that have happened over the last you know decade or more. Some of them are names that we just don't recognize. A lot of them are names that we wouldn't recognize, and, and they're actually easy targets. It could be law offices. It could be dentist offices. It could be. um a lot of these kind of third parties that have relationships to larger companies, because that's ultimately what, what's happening is people are attacking easy points of access and then they're spidering out to to get to where they're ultimately trying to, to reach, wherever the, um, the ultimate target or goal is. And some of this is happening by accident. Some of it is happening intentionally and some of it is, uh, you know, state sponsored for any number of reasons, political. And I think that's not going to change. I think that the it's a it's a it's a cat and mouse game, and it's always going to be, you know, playing catch up to what the hackers are doing. And in some cases, you're going to get ahead of them, and in other cases, they're already doing something else. Um, there is not going to be one way or or one attack vector that's going to be totally secure. Um, I think that as AI starts to become uh, more heavily used in machine learning, we'll start picking up more patterns. But then guess what? Hackers will use AI and ML to combat that. It's, <laughs> right. you know, it's, a, it's an arms race that's never ending. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And I think, you know, as, as much as we think uh, things get better, it just gets more complicated. Maybe that's the way to say it. it's like even, you know, the simple like maybe you took uh, steps to do the simple things, but now something else has emerged that you weren't even thinking about. Right. And that's I think that's why this is such a difficult area to like continuously be prepared for. Well, and, and if you think about these, like these weren't super sophisticated things. Like some of these were were phishing emails, mm-hmm. right? Some of these things were, you know, patch updates that were, you know, you know with Trojan horses. And I mean, like it's still the same stuff from like, you know, that McAfee was like, oh, well, let's run the software on our desktop and this will protect you. I mean, and and it's still the same stuff. Like, I'm not going to run that on my desktop. It makes my laptop slow. Yeah. All right. Well, guess what? Something you, you, you have malware in your system. It's 
it's not new. The techniques have changed, but it's the same kind of attack vectors. It's the same yeah. thing. There's still no way to protect it unless you literally say people can no longer open emails and click links. That's right. I like, like it. That's perfect. It's like, yeah, you can have no employees and none of the computers are connected to a network and they don't have any data and they don't do anything and your business makes no money, but you are very right. secure. So yeah, that's yeah, always, yeah, exactly. if, you that's don't always get hacked, if you don't want to get hacked, don't be a successful company. Okay. All right. So let's, let's, uh, let's try to offer some practical advice. So I thought what would be fun here is like, let's assume, uh, that you and I have been hired. We've been hired to go work at a, some enterprise, some company, and they know that their security is not necessarily where they want it to be. Right. So they're looking to us and we'll, we'll assume that, you know, that they've got some customer data, they build software internally, they've got some, um, some type of software as a service they're offering and things like that. So we're kind of just, you know, kind of just your typical enterprise. There's probably millions of these uh, are going on. So let's say, you know, they come to us and they say, well, you know, I'm a little concerned. I've been reading about these hacks. I don't know if I've necessarily done everything that I could have done. So, with that in mind, if, if we're going in and we're having our first meeting with the executives and we're going to like lay out and tell them, you know, kind of what we're going to do and why we're going to do it, what does that first meeting look like? What are we going to tell the executive uh, that are hiring us, like why they should care and then how we're going to approach that? How would, how would we go in and give that presentation? So, so Brandon, I think you know me and how I operate and, and you know how I like to do every meeting. You let the customer talk first, yep. right? You always let them talk first because no matter what you're in there selling, whether it's your your expertise or your product or whatever, the first thing you have to find out is what is the pain point, right? You you can, you probably have some ideas like, okay, here's some general things we can do. We, we're going to sell you this health check and we're going to go through and look at your environment. But really what you want to find out is what are the concerns? Most people have an idea like, look, I don't think I'm very secure in these key areas. And it might be a place where you start. The reality is, is once you get in there, it, you're going to start unraveling kind of all kinds of stuff. But but where you start is really with a simple question, which is, what are you trying to protect? Like, what are the valuables of that company? And for each company, it's different. You can say it's the customer data. Sure. Everyone's got customer data. Everyone has to secure it because there are regulatory requirements. Um, you know, there's brand issues that they have to be concerned with. But depending upon the kind of uh, industry you're talking about, there may be additional information that is um, highly competitive, uh, competitively advantageous to them that gives them their edge in the market or that allows them to solve a, a problem that other people can't do the way that they can. And that data is just as valuable, if not more valuable than the rest of it. And so starting to understand what is that data, uh, where is it stored, who has access to it, and you know what happens if, if it were to be compromised? Like, like what are the different ways you could shut that business down? It's almost like you're you're exploring ways in which you could take that company down, and and so there's you've got to have some trust with that customer that they're willing to kind of open the kimono for you, and they usually aren't right away. They'll start with something that was like, oh well, look over here, and then once you look over there and you find out that's not really where I need to be looking, um, then you then you you ultimately have to get back to these questions, and I think this is actually where people struggle. The most and, mm-hmm. and so much extra misdirection is happening and busy work that that doesn't get to the heart of um, creating an inventory of all of the assets that you have and who has access to it. How often do they access it? What is normal for your business? Because if you don't take a baseline, then you can't know when things are off 
or abnormal. And a lot of this, um, the stuff that happens in cybersecurity, unfortunately, isn't preventative. It's after the fact. It's once you've been compromised, how quickly can you respond? Yeah. Right? You have to assume you're going to get compromised. So I think the first thing you have to know is where are the areas that you're trying to protect? And the first thing you have to do is figure out, do you have some type of perimeter around that? Yeah. Well, like I think even to your point, like I think you're uh, you know, right on so many respects. I find that one way to kind of elicit some of those responses is in the first meeting is like to just pretend, right? Be like, all right, let's just pretend like you are going through a major hack right now. And you could just use any of the examples I talked before. You could say potentially it's a SolarWinds thing where it's actually affecting your customer. Or you could be like a Sony kind of thing where it's actually the entire company is essentially the computing infrastructure is taken down. And I think that's kind of the first thing you want to have the executives like, all right, let's assume no one in this company can touch their computer for a week, at least a week, right? Because yeah. everything's been uh, infested. Like, what's the state of your business? Like, are you out that's of right. business? Like, are you completely out of business potentially? Now that's a pretty extreme. Maybe most businesses are. are you at a point where you have to issue major refunds to your customer? Are you at a point where um, that, you know, your business, the publicity from that could potentially end your company, right? If you're a publicly right. traded company, what's going to happen if you investors see this and like you're suddenly your stock price is down 30, 40%, like what is the impact? I mean, like literally having this conversation with executives and saying, because in some cases, like, I think sometimes we always want to present it as extremely dire. And it's like, well, in some yeah. businesses, it may not be the end of the world, right? It may be very inconvenient for customers, right? It may be something that is extremely embarrassing, but it's something that, you know, you can ultimately see a way of recovering, right? Like, literally, it's like, you know what we would do? We'd send everyone home for two weeks and, yeah, we'd pay them, but we'd get through it versus like, no, the store cannot open and the revenue that's coming in and the deliveries we have, like literally the company's going into debt every day that that happens, right? So you can kind of yeah. like, you know, think of that uh, first and foremost. And I think, too, it's it's also kind of kind of back to, you know, leveling with that, that set of executives. It's like we don't have infinite money here. Like we don't have the ability to protect against every conceivable uh, type of intrusion, right? So the question is like, how much money do we have? It's kind of like insurance, right? It's like, we well, can insure exactly you it. from yeah. everything. But, and then I think on the PR front too, it's it's also saying like, okay, if this happened today, right? Like you can literally, especially if you assemble the right people and say, okay, who's in, who's the person that's uh, your VP of communications or marketing, right? Are you ready to write a press release very quickly to explain what it is? And then you look around the room, if you have an IT security at all or developers or more importantly, a general counsel there. All right, yeah. you're the lawyer. It's like, hey, I'm going to, like, we can't just say we're not going to say anything. I need you prepared to help us review a statement that we can legally go out and say and not create a ton of new exposure. But the idea that we're not going to say anything for weeks is not acceptable. Yeah. And the yeah, fact I that a lawyer this, wants to do that is like, that's not acceptable, yeah. right? In this day and age, you know, with, with, you know, how quickly we can share information you know, that everyone's got a phone in their hand and can report on the news in real time. It's it's no longer acceptable for a company. And I get they're trying to like, well, before we say anything, we want to figure out and make sure that it's the compromise isn't, you know, still happening. But today you kind of have to say in real time, hey, everyone, we just got compromised. This is what we know. And we're going to keep you informed as we as we come. Don't worry about this. This is what we're doing to secure your information or this is what we're doing to make sure that you aren't, you know, inconvenienced in some way. I think. You know, it, it's tough because people go, well, uh, on one hand, customers might respect it. But on another hand, depending upon the, the business, it could cause them to flee. 
Like if you're a SaaS, you know, uh, you know, company and you have competitors that are offering almost identical service to you and maybe it's a couple of dollars difference per month and you just happen to have the market share, you could lose market share over overnight with something like that. But I think the reality is in, in to your point. So there's there's this notion of kind of the, the simulation exercise, which is always a good exercise to do, but not everyone can kind of afford to do it. They don't either spend the time or take the time to do it, but I've seen it become very um, effective in terms of at least letting the executive audience and the board know how critical this stuff is, especially the timing of these things and the coordination required to get that message out, to secure your infrastructure and to understand what kind of impact it's going to have on your business. Yeah. And I think, you know, you brought up an interesting thing. So it really does depend upon what your business is. So, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, Target, Sony, Equifax, uh, they're still all in business. And in fact, you know, I, I own, I own stock in Target. It's doing quite well. So was it a bump in the road? Yes, but their business wasn't tied to the consumer credit card. Now, yes, consumers' credit cards were used to buy things, but they aren't in the business of selling credit cards. So it's not as big of an impact as, say, um, if someone went and burned down every Target. Okay, yeah. well, now you can't actually sell stuff at the store. Right. Or if they shut down the point of sale systems for everything, then they actually couldn't take in revenue that would impact them for some time until they got the systems back up. But they're in the business of selling products. I think where SolarWinds is different is their business is security. And if you basically poke a hole and say this is not secure, that's different. Yeah. That is attacking their core business. And 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 that's going to be different to see if they come out on the other side. I mean, just assume CEO's gone of every company where this stuff happens, and then they'll bring another CEO and they'll say some statements and then they'll try to move forward. If they have a company where the value of what they have to offer outweighs the risk that that customer uh, data is out there. And, yeah, and, and I think people the other, will make that I'm with decision. you. And I think the other two examples, you know, also really interesting to kind of like compare and contrast like Sony, for the most part, you know, the fact that Sony got hacked, it's, it's kind of like there's all this salacious details and maybe like, a couple yeah. of movies got like pushed back or some scripts got, but like ultimately, you know, we don't look to Sony. I don't think any of us thinks of like Sony as like being like a highly secure, like we're just really looking for them to entertain it for entertainment. Right. So it's like, you know, for us, it's just more like, well, when's the next big movie coming out that we, yeah, and, that's related and, and to even, that. And even the breach itself was a form of entertainment because yeah, people I mean, are like, <laughs> Oh my God, they said what? And think about how often Sony wasn't, they may have not, they may have felt uncomfortable and the people who sent those emails probably were very uncomfortable but it in and of itself was a form. It of was. I mean, well, certainly for the gossip media trade, uh, they, <laughs> yeah. they got a lot of it. So I think, and then you compare that with Equifax. With Equifax is all about collecting data, securing it, and then, if you will, uh, offering up credit uh, reports on everyone that determine whether or not that someone is uh, able to usually take a loan of some kind. So they are right. I mean, that's really core to their business. Is the fact that like I got to collect this data, we have to secure it, and we have to make sure that, that this data is accurate because if you know, banks are not sure that the credit you know, files that they're getting are accurate, that are either too optimistic or too negative, then, you know, they're not going to be able to give loans. So it's like, you know, that's another one around like Equifax clearly has the heart of their business. And I know that they've, as far as I can tell, they've generally recovered. I mean, I don't know. It's like credit agencies. It seems like they just like live on like roaches. Like we just, I don't know. Somehow yeah, they're just I, there. Um, but like, I do think to your point about like how, you know, how quickly a business can be taken down because that's, that's ultimately going to be back to like what, when we're recommending, when we're in this meeting and we're going to ask for money, cause we're going to say, based on what you told us, 
we think an, uh, an appropriate budget for security is going to be X. And I'm sure everyone will be upset. It's like, oh, it's too much. I say, well, listen, you know, this, this is really what it is. And I think after you make that budget ask or that, that first thing, it's like, I think you also want to then work, go around the room and say, okay, when this happens, when this breach happens, because it's going to happen, who is the spokesman of the company that we're going to put out in front? Could be your CEO. It's going to need to be an executive. Maybe it's a CIO. Maybe it's a, a CISO. Something along those lines. Because then I think you literally want to, in the meeting, you turn to that person and you ask them and you say, "All right, when you're now the person giving the press briefing and answering the calls, yeah, what, do you, what do you want to be able to say to those people about what you did?" And how well you understood it when you're explaining that. Do you, and and, and cause, cause that's just, this goes to the budget. Like if you give us less money, it means you're just going to have less answers. You're going to, you're going to face questions of like, I thought you would have done this and you didn't do it. Or you can say, we took all of these actions. We did our best, right? Like we put our best foot forward. It still happened, but here are the things that we thought about before, beforehand. And then literally when you're, you know, you think about it, it's almost like doing the homework as a student, like, did you prepare for the test? Doesn't mean you're going to get 100%. That's right. But did you prepare? And are you That's prepared right. to answer the questions? Because that really, I find that that, when you find that person, it's like, it's not abstract to them. It's like, you're the one talking. Okay, what are the answers that you want to have ready to go? Because that can really help the budget conversation. And if that well, spokesman can be the CEO, then you really have someone's attention. Well, and not only that, but I think, I think the other, you know, kind of going to the next set of questions is, look, here are the questions that you need to have answers to before you make a statement. And then ask them the questions. Can you tell me these answers today about your business? And nine times out of 10, they probably can't. Um, and, and I would say that even some of the best companies can answer some some of these basic questions. And I, and I think, you know, you alluded to something earlier that, that I want to get back to, which is security is about risk management. And it's about, I mean, business is about risk management, right? It's about saying, what am I willing to give up in exchange for an opportunity to chase some kind of reward? And, and how much risk can I tolerate? And different companies and, di you know, and, and different cultures within different companies have a different answer to that question. And what I always try to make people understand in security is this is a risk management problem, plain and simple. And, the, and risk management has a formula. Right. It's likelihood times impact. That's that's how you measure risk. And when you get to and, and this maybe kind of carries into like metrics, you know, and, and KPIs and, you know, what kind of information should you be, you know, sharing with C-level and with the board? You want to have a way of being able to quantify at least in some 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 quantitative way, not just quali qualitative way, but quantitative way of saying, am I doing a good enough job? Because that's what it is. It, there is no such thing as being able to secure every possible thing. If you did, you would run out of money. It's just not possible. And what you have to figure out as a business is how much of your annual revenue is it worth to say that you're doing the right things, both from a, an actual security perspective, but then also from a regulatory compliance perspective, right? Yeah. And I always ask the question, and, and nobody really ever gave me an answer, which is, you know, when auditors would come in and say, you need to do X, Y, Z, and they were very prescriptive, um, I would always ask, well, why? What is the purpose? What's the goal here? And once they described the goal, then I could say, well, there's actually a simpler way to do it that's that's less uh, invasive and would solve the problem. And they never really liked that because <laughs> yeah, auditors get paid by the hour. That, right. You know, that you'll never, ever make your auditors totally satisfied. For any company that is listening to this podcast, 
if you think that you're going to spend enough money or buy the technology or implement the right thing that your auditors are going to go, well, you're good. We're out of here. That will never happen because they get paid by the hour. I know this because I work for an audit firm. So you get paid by the hour and you bill by the hour to find things that are wrong. And so guess what? You're going to find things that are wrong. I'm not saying that it's nefarious. I'm just saying that's the nature of the game. Yeah, that's so, the business, right? Yeah. yeah. So if you know that that's true and that's the ecosystem and the way it works, you have to you have to be thinking about this in terms of risk management and say, what amount of revenue am I willing to put up as insurance to make sure that I can chase this bigger opportunity? Yeah. And if you and if you can't quantify what that that opportunity is then you can't quantify how much risk you're willing to take for that opportunity. So there's some basic questions about how the business runs and what it, what line of business it's in and what new opportunities they're chasing and whether it's worth exposing data and information to chase that opportunity. And that comes anytime you develop an app, anytime you write an API to expose data, to share with a partner, you've got to be asking yourself that question. All right, I like it. So listen, we've had the meeting. We've scared everyone. I think we, we won the deal. They're going to hire us, right? Yep. And so you alluded yep. us before. I think you said before. So when we're starting here, I think, you know, we want to kind of start to figure out maybe, you know, just where everything is. And I kind of like to think of this as like uh, know the people, know the data, and know the regulations. That's really what I need to know about your business before we can even like really get started doing anything. So so a couple of questions here, like one, did I miss anything there? And then two, like, how do we actually go about getting this information from an organization so we can start making some intelligent recommendations? <laughs> That's the silver bullet. Yeah. So, I mean, I think at a, at a, at a macro level, yeah, those are the right things, right? It's, it's, you know, it's really what, you know, understanding how the business operates, what, what is their business and, and then starting to understand, well, what information or what data or what inventory or assets does this company have that I need to protect ultimately and figuring out how to quantify and inventory those things. And so so a, a great place to start if you know nothing about security is just go to like uh, CSC Top 20 or NIST and look at those. They, they give a good framework for the different categories of security that you need to be aware of, everything from vulnerability management to identity management to um, you know, uh, inventory of uh, devices, applications uh, in your environment. I'll tell you right now, most companies that are large, especially that have been through a lot of M&A, struggle with just the basics of, can you tell me, can you provide me a list of all applications and all devices on your network right now? Most companies can't do that because it's transient. It changes over time. There's always new things connecting in the environment. And now that you've got APIs talking to other APIs and services talking to services, it's even more complex. It's not just understanding what people have access to what systems. It's what service is talking to what service and should that service be allowed to access secure data. And, and so what I, I think what's changed is being able to get to go to a, a new lev level of granularity in order to answer those questions that we didn't right. have to traditionally. But I think we could start, I mean, to like offer some hope here. It's like, okay, you know, I mean, one, I'm going to just throw out like a you know, very controversial take here. It's like, one thing uh -oh. we can do is just literally start by asking everyone. I was like, okay, let's at least like, we don't know, we haven't done it. Let's start with like, hey, and this could, this is this is nothing technology. It's like, let's get a few of the people that are run the business, that know the business, what's going on. And let's start with literally a whiteboard or just, I was like, what are all yep. the applications that your department is using that you're touching every day? Who are the vendors that you're, you know, 
usually interacting with on a, a constant, you know, a way, what are like, how is accounts payable? How's accounts receivable set up? If you're building software, what email system are you using? Are you doing any type of storage uh, sharing? Do you do any type of file sharing? Do you have any of that? Like, like, so at least, you know, make it, you know, cause I think sometimes like people get overrun. It's like, Hey, let's at least start building the picture out here. Cause if we can at least get that up and then, yeah. I think if, and then the same thing we do, we said, okay, who, maybe not the people, not by name, but like, who are the major groups in your company? And generally, what are the tools and applications they're using, right? Because all yeah. of this starts to like, at least build out a framework for us, because this is just going to tell us like, what we what we know. And of course, we don't know what we don't know. But like, we now have a place to at least guess to start to go look yeah, for more. I, what I would say is I would even go a level up from there. I mean, I, I, I would I would keep it as like clouds, boxes and arrows, like just show me the major components and show me the ins and outs. What what flows into it, what flows out of it. Not even talking about tools, not even talking about product, because I mean, you, you know, uh, you know, I've worked for companies where they have tens of thousands of registered applications and that doesn't even count all of the different things. So if you say, well what tools do you use? That 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 you could be there for years and never get that answered. I think before that it's even just saying what are the major, like, who do you uh, have to partner with in order to deliver your service, right? That way you know, is there a critical third-party engagement that has to happen, which means you're sharing information at, at some level. I mean, so start to kind of just say, what is, draw the, the and I'm going to say this in quotes, the perimeter, because as we all know, the perimeter is gone. Um, draw the circle around, you know, your business assets and say, how do these get to your customers? And do you have to partner with someone to get those things to your customers? And what internal systems or processes do you need for that thing to go from inception to in the hands of your customer? And once you know that bit, you'll start to very quickly find out where there's these murky areas that you have to kind of dig in deeper. And then then I think you start getting into some of the the, the more kind of into details. the weed stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, but I think, think the other know, thing that it's worth having in kind of I like your, uh, your boxes and arrows comment is like the other thing is like we should just, you know, kind of write on this, our, our whiteboard here too. It's like, okay, what, what are the audits that you have to undergo? Like whatever the industry you're in, like are, are yep. you a healthcare, like a HIPAA thing? Or are you like a finance thing? You know, because right. every industry, you know, they have these long acronyms and it's just like, hey, who are the people that come in and audit you every year? either on the finance side, on an IT perspective, what are the, you know, cause this is something that you know, most consultants, unless you've worked in that a specific domain, um, you won't know off the top of your head. Like what are the things in this industry that we need yep. to know about? And let's, let's look at it. Like, Hey, how do we do in our last set of audits? Let's even call the auditor before the audit. I know revolutionary thought here and say, <laughs> what are the, what are they going to be looking for? What is the report That's right. that they need to know? Because uh, you know, as you know, like waiting till the auditor shows up and then they're like, they start requesting information that you have never even co contemplated saving. It's just like, this isn't going to go well. This is going to well, be the, a long audit. Well, I think that's, that's good. Kind of having a proactive relationship with your auditor is, is key because the other thing that happens is, and this is both true for internal audit and external auditors, which is, it seems like every year or every six months or every quarter, whatever the, the requirement is for the audit, they come in. And they ask you the same questions about the product or the service that they asked last time. And you're like, I know that we went over this. Why are we doing this again? Mm -hmm. And they forget because they're going through and doing this all over the organization yeah. or with multiple organizations. And, you know, I'm sorry, but your stuff isn't special. 
it just kind of becomes a blur. And so if you have a constant cadence of updating and saying, this is what we're doing, here's how we're doing it, this, it helps them to already establish that relationship with you and things tend to go a lot smoother. I like it. All right. So we've got it. Okay. So now we at least have, you know, uh, a kind of a, a, a place to start to your point. And I think you, you brought up, uh, you know, somewhat interesting, potentially controversial topic, depending on who you're talking to around, <laughs> at least we know where all the data is. We know at least the general set of the apps. And so you kind of said earlier, it's like, there is no perimeter. And so say they also, so say these, these executives that we've been, um, you know, working with, they're doing some reading on their own, which is always good and bad. And they come to us yes. and they're like, Hey, I, I read this, this paper from Google. It's about zero trust. And like, That's everyone's right. talking zero trust. Like, uh, I think we should do, and then they'd probably say something like, we need to do zero trust. So yeah, for, for everybody out there, yeah. <laughs> what, I read what, this magazine article and we right. need to do X. Yeah. That's usually how and it starts. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, how do you define zero trust and what is your take on the zero trust movement? So, so I'll keep it simple. It's, um, don't assume that your network is secure. Assume that, that you can't trust anyone or anything that makes a request. Don't assume that the per that whoever authenticated is still the same person that's making the request. Right. Don't assume that once someone's authenticated to your network, that they're all good. And this is internal shareable information and the rest is not because we all know that people also struggle with data classification. So very often if you start going through and looking at company documents, you'll find out that the data classification is incorrect and it should probably be secure, and it's not. It's just floating around out there, and someone can walk out the door with it. So uh, it, it's making sure it, – it's kind of starting with the premise that the network itself is compromised mm -hmm. and that everyone and everything on the network is compromised. Right. So I, how – yeah. I was going to say, I think the answer – I think zero trust is often the answer to this following question or this – um, that people put forward. It's like, well, listen, I, I, I'm pretty sure we're secure because like everything that's important is, is behind this corporate VPN. And then, mm, you know, you just right. log into the, the corporate VPN and we have these firewall rules and they're yeah. really strict. And there's, you yeah. know, and, and, and I think that oftentimes, you know, people that have been around in it for a while, like, you know, there was a time, you know, back way back in the day where like, that yeah. was actually, that was secure. That was, I mean, that's why all these firewalls exist. Like, okay, just, right. you know, per, you know, that's the perimeter, if you will. And so yeah. um, the answer to then that we, is like, no, like, it's, it's not that VPNs as by themselves are bad. It's just that like, if, if you are in a situation where it's like, oh, well, I just log into the corporate VPN. And then once you get on the VPN, it's a free for all, uh, you, you are in a bad situation. That is the, uh, the antithesis of a zero trust. Right. And yes. so yes. that's really what people are saying is like, don't pretend that a VPN alone today and then free for all on the other side is really that effective at securing anything. And I think, yeah. um, another tell, I think when you go to places where, um, everyone play, has different like, you know, policies around Wi-Fi. Like you're a visitor somewhere and they're like a guest Wi-Fi and an employee Wi-Fi and stuff like that. And it's like, listen, that's a good like kind of zero trust test. It's like, hey, if 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 it, you're afraid for me to get on the corporate Wi-Fi, it's pro you know, you probably have some some issues right there. It's like because you should just assume everything that's on the Wi-Fi, you know, especially any client, whether it's my Mac or your PC or my phone. It's like, hey, man, this stuff's hitting your network all the time. And having a quote unquote pair of corporate credentials to get to the corporate Wi-Fi versus the the guest Wi-Fi. It's not really helping. I don't, for me, I'm like, you're not really securing anything. Maybe that makes you feel better uh, yeah. or something like that. But it's like, it's sort of an indication that you haven't really bought into like zero trust when well, I see that. It, to me, it's like, it's the, you know, the crawl one, crawl, run, walk, fly. It's, it's definitely in the crawl stage. It's like, hey, look, 
Um, if someone shows up, they can't get on a Wi-Fi without going to this landing page, which is probably hackable too, um, and putting in some credentials. And maybe we've got multi-factor authentication, and you know, but but still, once they're past that little gate, there's some segmentation that's happening, but it's super it's super minor. high level, right? And it's yeah, super broad, super high, right? Yeah. And, so. and if someone can then connect to another system or another person, or even hell, just give them a corporate email account, and then they just start sending out phishing emails inside. I mean, it doesn't matter at that point, right? Yeah. Like like assume that everything every and really, it, it has to be at the API level now. It, you've got to literally say with every transaction or every method call, who's requesting it, what's the request for, what's the context of the request being made, right? It's not yep. just, you know, it's kind of, you know, the old, I, the old um, IAG or IAM mantra was who has access to what, is the access appropriate, and how is the access being used? It's asking those questions in real time. And then making a policy decision to say yes or no, can the person yeah, execute cool. this? Totally with you. All right, That's so you know is. we've got all this stuff, and, and we're working through it. And you know we've um, you know we've kind of, and now I think we have people understanding a little bit about zero trust, so they're bought in. The executives are like, yeah, we're going to do that, and we're going to try to isolate everything. And then um, then they're usually going to say like, you know, I read about how the um, CIA uh, covertly uh, took over the nuclear power plant of uh, Iran and implemented some code and like basically destroyed yep. nuclear reactors. And then they're going to say, is like, how are you, it sounds like we should start there. This is exactly, it's like, we should probably start there and prevent that. And then what I'm going to say is that we're going to uh, metaphorically tell them like, actually, no, we're not starting on any of that where we, that's, that is the least uh, thing that least important thing for us to worry about at this very minute. And then we're going to recommend to them, uh, we're going to tell them we're starting with identity management. So for those yeah, that yeah. don't know what identity management is, what is it? <laughs> what is it? And why are we starting with this? Why does the executives yeah. who are objecting, why should, why should they care about identity management? So, I mean, identity management really kind of started out originally as kind of like a provisioning type of solution, which said, hey, um, I'm a sys administrator. I have to create all these accounts. I have Active Directory. I have all these groups. I need something to help me manage it. And so provisioning was the first thing. But, but really what it is, it's about authorization. It's about saying, um, you know, it, it is answering like who has access to what. And it, identity management originally started out as a very person-centric view of security. And once again, it makes sense because, as I said before, people are the weakest link in all this. So why do you want to start with people? Because they are most likely going to be the thing that gets com compromised first. I mean, you can just look at, 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 at um, anyone who does any type of phishing simulation training internally can look at those numbers and know, oh, we're in trouble. Like any company, guaranteed. Um, so you have to have an idea, at, at least from a people standpoint, who your high, medium, low risk users are in an environment. And you're going to have people that have elevated access, and that's where you get into kind of privileged, uh, privileged uh, identity management, where you start to say, well, what about people who have access to root on all of my Unix systems? Um, what do I do to secure those? Um, what about the out-of-box default username password that ships with my security products? How do I make sure that those are being updated and being changed out? Like there's all those types of things that that kind of deal with non-person identities as well, but it really is getting to the heart of what uh, entitlements do people or things have on my network? Yep. And, and then how do so we control use, it? Because that's really yeah, what our control. answer back to the executives is like, 
listen, our, our, we have our threats are so wide right now. No one has to like go out and write some complicated code to you know install into your nuclear reactor, which you don't have, and take it over. It's like really all somebody has to do is just talk to like any one of your very lowest level employees that have no business having that, and they just have to fish one person, which would be very easy. Or social engineer. Yeah one thing one time and you're already you know you're in huge trouble so that's yeah. why we're starting with the dining management it's like this is this is literally the walk right this is the walk before anything it's like we just yeah. need to know and then maybe we should talk a little bit about access management it's like the the cousin if you will to identity management, like, why are we then going to, so if we kind of say, it's like, okay, we've, we've at least sort of got a process in place to now manage these identities. So what is access management and why, why are we going there next? Yeah. So, so think of identity management as, so, so there's, there's two kind of main pieces you need. You need to kind of enforce, you need to kind of govern centrally. And that's kind of where your identity management and IAG kind of products come from, like your cell points and sun, old sun, Oracle stuff. And then you've got the enforcement side, which you want to enforce locally. In other words, as close to the thing that you're trying to authenticate to, to say whether or not someone can get in or not. You know, companies like Okta, for example, um, you know, Forge Rock, where you're, you're sitting as close to the thing you're trying to protect. And in real time, you're saying this person doesn't have the right entitlements or isn't supposed to have access to this uh, asset in any sh way, shape, or form. So the two work in concert because typically um, you're provisioning access into groups with an Active Directory or via policy, or you're using ABAC or rollback um, access controls. And then the enforcement is happening typically through access management. And they'll be uh, they'll have stuff like passwordless, uh, multi-factor authentication, one-time passwords, uh, you know, all that kind of uh, capability to make sure that people can authenticate and prove that they are who they are. Yeah, and I think that's the whole point is that, you know, once we sort of have the ability to provision people with the denning management, and then now, and it's going to be a process, right? Now we're going to say, hey, we want every one of our applications to authenticate through access management, some central point, right? Because that yep. starts to let us look at every single person. And more importantly, to our point about, because we're doing zero trust, it's like, we're not just looking at them one time. We're looking at every time they're logging in, Right. We're going to yep. look at what are they trying to do. And, you know, this is the place where, of course, many vendors will come out with these very complicated uh, AI, machine learning algorithms, but like something yeah. very simple. For example, it's like, you know, the classic banking. It's like, fine, someone wants to transfer $100 at yeah. 2 o'clock on a Friday, and I see that they do this every week on a Friday. It's like, yeah, it's fine. Probably just like let them do their password, let them do the $200. Now, if it's like, you know, uh, Saturday night, it's 3 a.m. And this IP address I've never seen before, maybe it kind of like appears to be spoofed. Maybe it's even coming from another country and they're yeah. moving $20,000. It's like, well, you know, that's the place the access management system can you know, either say no, it's like, this is not going to do it right now. Or I'm going to, to your point, I'm going to do some challenges. I'm going to make them do like a, a 2FA. Yeah, I'm going to make them go through um, because that's a high value transaction. And, and notice there, right? It's like it's the same person. And everyone has an, an example of like, I have actually been traveling in like another place in Europe or yep. in Mexico and it has been late at night and I needed money. We won't even go into why, but it was like, right. I needed it. Right. So yeah. everyone has had you that kind of conversation. That I got, right. yeah. and yeah, and I had to call the I bank. Did, yeah. 
right? I and it's like, yeah. $20,000 right now. Don't ask me. It is me. Yeah. But I need $20,000 right now. That's right. Like, hey, it does happen. But like, so it's not that we want to prevent that. It's that, that hey, that is going to require a phone call and maybe a couple of questions from um, the call center about like, you know, what's going on, who you are and things like that. So, yeah. uh, so back to like, you know, this is now we're getting back to like what the executives asked us. It's like, we've got our identity management. We've got some access management. And then I think we should start to like go into privilege identity management just a little bit just to touch on it because now we are going to have to go meet with what is often the most sophisticated but also i often find like the most difficult group like the internal it group the developers the administrators yeah. your sres because they all know computer systems very well and they all do very complicated things that are important to the business but they typically are the last ones that want to have any oversight going on, right? They're the people that well, potentially it's extra work, it's extra work right? It feels like it gets yeah. in their way, right? Yeah. And this is where we say, it's like, yeah, it turns out we're going to, um, you're going to have to authenticate through our privilege identity management system. Anytime you want to do a uh, run sudo, any type yeah. of super user action. So, so how do we log and we're going to, and we're going to monitor everything you type in there. Yeah. And we're going to take a screenshot potentially right. and we're going to look at yeah. it. So, so Squire, uh, how, how do, how do we convince them? <laughs> I say this as if I've ever really been successful. How, how do we convince yeah. that group to get on board? So, so here, here's, I'm going to say this in general terms, it, and it doesn't just apply to this group. So this is something that I kind of, um, you know, learned in my, my, one of my, my last roles doing kind of, uh, you know, the metrics program for cybersecurity. It's a very highly effective when you put up a metric and you put a red, amber, green about how well they're doing in a certain area. And when you tell them how it's going to be calculated based off of the percentage of times that you're you know, monitoring, uh, you know, privileged access, and, and it's going to be shared with the CIO and the CISO, it's amazing how quickly people start to kind of go, oh, you know what, maybe we should look into this. So my, my general answer is you kind of start above them. You, 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 have, to, you have to get the buy-in higher up that says, this is a critical piece of, of your risk management strategy that says, I want to make sure that the people who have access to the keys to the kingdom that could do the most damage to my company have some safeguards around the type of work they're doing. And more importantly, I really want to key in and look at how well they did on their phishing simulations because there is a very uh, – um, uh, a, a very dangerous kind of uh, area that falls into when you have people with privileged access and people who are repeat offenders that fail phishing simulations. If you're not doing something today about that group of people, then, you know, you're, you're just asking for, for you to be the, the next headline. Yeah. And I think that's the group, you know, in all seriousness, because I think we talked about it's like, I think that's a group where you, I think you can do some top down, you know, a little stick and also the carrot side is like one is to work with them around. It's like, okay, especially if they're working with any like AWS, Azure, uh, GCP, it's like, hey, one, it's like those identity and access management models for every one of those is very complicated. And I don't, you know, yeah. not, I mean, to some degree, I feel like nobody knows at all. Right. But I think one, it's like, hey, let's actually go through this and let's maybe even hire some experts to come through and make sure that we did the kind of the idea, minimal uh, privileges, right? Like, did we take yeah. everything that we really need? And it's, it's unlikely anyone would know that without actually going through the audit. I think that's one option Two, It's the place that like, okay, well, where can we do some stuff that doesn't rely on passwords? So get away from you having to type something in, maybe it's a certificate some higher level security, right? Because you're trying yeah. to say to them, it's like, yeah, rather than us trying to pretend that everyone can keep these passwords and manage it and, and out of the way, let's let's actually go to the next level. And 
at the end of the day, right, we want to appeal to them and say this, we want this to be uh, as automated as possible, right, as we kind of get into DevOps, but we want it to be as secure as possible. Yeah. So let's think about, we may have to do a couple of weeks of work here, really going through and, you know, reducing privileges and finding some more secure ways to do it. But once we're done, right, it should actually be a little bit more automated for you. And it should also make your job a little easier because you don't have to, because, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. It's like, Hey, listen, everybody has been fished. Like everyone yeah. has failed a fishing. Uh, I did yeah. just the other day they where it got me. And I, I just, you know, so disappointed in myself. Right. But it's like, it happens. Yeah. Like it will happen. It will. Nobody is a hundred percent all the time. So That's it's right. just like, be aware of it, but also relate to those people and say, Hey, Hey, when you fall for it, let's have a couple set extra layers of security here that are going to catch that so that, you know, it's not one yeah. click and it's all over. Yeah. I think there's, uh, you, you know, you brought up some good points. I think the, you know, the, the essence of how phishing is successful is because they're good at targeting you at times when you're most vulnerable. There's a reason why there's a very high level of phishing happening during the holidays. It's because people are trying to wrap up. They're trying to be done for the end of the year. They're trying to just get through their emails and clear out their inboxes and go home and probably the most common, the, the one that that, uh, that that we did that that got the highest hit rate um, was the um, the your package your you know click here to track your package one. That is a because everyone is shipping packages more than usual. They don't know what carrier it's going through. They're buying from them you know people on uh, you know uh, eBay and Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace, and it's going through PayPal or Venmo. And then it's getting shipped through some company that they didn't they didn't decide. So all of a sudden they get this you know message from DHL saying, "Oh hey, your package has been delete, delayed. Click here and enter your credentials so that we can you know show you where your package is." And oh, magically you got fished. Like there's a reason why that stuff happens. But I think to your point, here's here's the here's the challenge that when you go to talk to groups about. Um, access and about privileges and entitlements and making sure that there's security around it. The, 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 the unfortunate side of things, especially when you get into folks like, um, you know, active directory administrators, directory administrators, they don't know the answer. I mean, they can pull the records for you, can say, here are all the groups and here are all the people who have access to these groups. And then you say, great, what do these groups do? I have no idea. Well, but you created the groups. I, I just, I got a request in to create the group. I created the group and I put the numbers in the group. They know why they did it. And and so and that's the same problem that happens on the flip side with certification of access, which is the access is being created by a different group than the one that's granting the request. And the person granting the request is 90 percent of the time the person's hiring manager. And that person knows nothing about security. Yep. That person does has no clue what the access does. All they're doing is saying, hey, I hired a guy. He's doing the same job as Jason given Jason's access. And so back in the old days, they used to literally create templates and just straight copy someone else's access, which is how you end up having excess access. Now, then they switched to like templates and now they're kind of going towards common access as, a, as an approach. But even that, it's still, it, you're still having the wrong person making the access request and certifying the access. Yep, no, totally with you. All right, well, listen, so we've, we've basically had our meeting here. We, we're getting our... Zero trust model going. We've got some identity management. We've got some access management. We've got some privileged identity management. So you can see, like, hey, man, we had a lot of work to do just getting our our own house in order. So 
because uh, you know we're going to run up on the legal limit of the length of a podcast. Let's just talk briefly about <laughs> you know basically intrusion detection in the outside world. Because if we start to get all this other stuff, and I think that usually just often comes in you know security information event management, also known as SIM, right? Sort of like a global console. We start looking at stuff. So why don't you give us like a brief. Uh, overview because this could go on for like another seven hours yeah. so we talk and, about it but like what should somebody be doing when they're like okay how do i get a a, a handle on what are the potential intrusions um that could, could be coming at me and how do i monitor for them yeah so and, and i'll be able to keep it brief because this is not my main area i'm i'm more on the identity side but having been on the cybersecurity side and having to kind of monitor and and provide kpis to the board and and uh to cso's one thing that i know I, so for example, there's this whole notion of securing the network, securing endpoints, securing email. Let's just keep it, we'll keep it super simple. So from a network perspective, you've got firewalls, VPNs, you've got um, any number of threat intelligence vendors that you may be using to look for pattern recognition. And that's all being fed by your uh, the SIEM, the Security Information Event Management Systems, which is basically a fancy term for uh, a log aggregator. So if you think about all of your, um, you know, servers that have server logs, it's taking all of that stuff, dumping it into a place, and then uh, writing, basically parsing rules and pattern matching rules that say, if I see something that looks like this, um, can you flag it for me? And then feeding all of that into your intelligence, threat intelligence software, and then basically having a team of people uh, in the incident response uh, team that just kind of sit there and watch the stuff all day. I mean, you know, one place I worked had just a really impressive room. It looked very much like what you would see on like 24 or like some kind of oh, like nice. CIA, like the, the yeah. movie set, the CSI, yeah. the big the yeah, big uh, dashboards go in, black room, giant mm -hmm. yeah dashboards and like hundreds like you know of monitors and you know it, it was very impressive looking. And then when you find out what it really is, is it's people having to read that and say, is this real versus not? And what makes it difficult is there's a lot of false positives because you're also at the same time running penetration tests and you have, uh, you know, kind of a red team exercises going on. And so you have to also know, okay, well, is this real or is this not real? But if it's truly red team, then no one really knows that it's being done. Right. So, so there's all this stuff, but, but at the, at the, at the most basic level, you've got to make sure that you've got, um, some type of way of, of filtering your traffic on your network and your email and, and your endpoints are secure. So it's, you know, vulnerability management comes into play with patching of servers and endpoints, um, running antivirus software on endpoints. If you've got people working remotely, which now, I mean, everybody. you know, with, with everybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's why I said perimeter is gone because there is no such thing as the, the intranet, like the internet's the intranet. So, <laughs> um, so, so, you have to make sure that everything that's connecting has some way of, of monitoring what's happen, happening. And then ultimately providing a set of filters. Um, and, and usually if you've got companies that you're working with partners that are doing things like anti-spam email filtering um, and, and some DLP products so that if something is moving from the inside out, you can start to track and say, 
wait a minute, this doesn't look normal. This is outside of the normal bounds. But I think so, what it gets to, right, is and what you're highlighting is like, you know, one is because we're good consultants, like what we really tell people is like, now that we have your internal systems all set up, it's like, well, the next project is uh, is the intrusion detection. And that's going to be a, another set of, that's going to be our next retainer that we're going to be yeah, offering yeah, for. Yeah. And if people are interested in it, we can uh, you have you back and have some other people back and we can go into a lot of detail. But I think the point is, and hopefully people see this, is like, hey, just getting your house in order is usually a big effort for most places. And I think that's most places, this is where you want to start. And then absolutely, to your point about like, hey, our ongoing insurance, if we've got at least our access management or identity management, our internal access policies done, okay, we're in a good place to start. But now that insurance payment we're going to make every month is funding a group to do all the things you're talking about, implement a SIM, penetration testing, red team versus blue team, right? And being smart, because let's go all the way back to what we talked about before. Like when when that person that we appointed as the spokesman for our security, our team, our company, he, what can he do? If he did everything he went through, he said, hey, we had a zero trust environment set up. We had proper identity management policies in place. We had centralized access management. We had privileged user management. We had all of these things in place and we had a SIM and we were detecting it. It's like, Okay, you know, you've at least given, uh, you know, I'm going to call it like the C plus B minus answer to your group to and that's and frankly, and if we're grading on a curve today, that's probably yeah. a, a B, B plus answer, right? It didn't, this doesn't say people are going to find problems with you. They're not going to say that you could have done more, right? They're always oh, yeah. going to say that, but you say, hey, based on our business and our risk tolerance, this is what we, we did. So, and I think it's going to be very relatable. People are going to be like, I get it. And, and then, of course, once you're in this place, now you can go to the next level, right? Now you can start to do the more sophisticated monitoring if it's necessary to your business. So, yeah. And, and I think I think you bring a good point is what this gets back to at the end of the day is this is all about risk management. And you have to always understand what is your revenue target that you're going after or what is the reward you're going to get and how much risk are you willing to tolerate to go and chase that? And that really is going to determine your budget. And and a portion of that budget is actually probably should be real insurance. Like if you're if you're a, a large corporation, you should have real insurance for when you get hacked. Yep. And and you're going to pay money for it, and it's going to pay dividends, and it's going to help you when you have to do legal, PR, all the communication stuff. But that's how you have to kind of view this. And you have to really look at this in terms of how do you attack this problem in bite-sized chunks. And really, you have to use the 80-20 rule. There's always – like if someone starts with the – I want to defend against the the nuclear codes and 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 blowing up my nukes in the factory. They're already thinking about this wrong. That person is going to spend too much money, or they're going to engineer something that's going to ultimately um, throw off balance the amount of value you're going to get for what you what you're ultimately trying to build. Absolutely. All right. Well, listen. I'll leave the we'll leave one final security tip. I think you know, so we've given a lot of advice today, but like, hey, here's something for if you run a large company of any kind. It's like. I think it's probably fairly easy and you can do probably tomorrow. It's like make it easy for everyone in your organization to use a password manager. There's a lot of good ones out there. Like there's one password, there's last pass. I use last pass. Yeah. Uh, I like, I like one password Mac kind of very friendly to the Mac side, but whatever, it doesn't matter what it is. Like if you're running an organization today, make it easy for everyone to like, you know, there's a lot of free versions and they're fine. Maybe that's a good place to start, but like, Hey, make it easy for people to just, you know, buy the license or give them a license to a password manager. Uh, because that's got back to like, Hey, if you don't want people to reuse passwords, make it easy for them to do proper password management. And that's, that's something that, you know, you can just, everyone can use. 
they can use it on their own. I even like, you know, implemented it in my family. I, you know, I've, after a couple of years, it took me a while Same. even in the house to like roll it out. Like, Hey, like, I don't know what any of my passwords are. They're always complicated to type in. I don't like, I have to go look it up. And once you kind of get people, um, kind of on the hump of like, yeah, never type in your password, I always use a last pass or one password. So that's something simple. So we'll leave it. We'll leave uh, the security topic there. Go give everyone a, a one password and, and um, the next thing I wanted to just briefly touch on with you, Squire, is like after you've worked in security for so long and after you've done yes. some, a bunch of these projects, what you have uh, done is if you've taken a little bit, uh, a couple of mini retirements, because that's what everyone needs to do after doing yes. this for a little bit. Yes. So we had yes. um, Dan Bukowski on a, a few episodes and I'll put that in. He did a retirement, kind of a mini retirement, I'll call it, but um, was uh, in a different stage of life, right? Was, uh, if you will, single, no, no family and went and traveled the world. But you yep. have done kind of a slightly different version of it. You've taken some time where I'm going to call it stay-at-home retirement. So I wanted you to like give us some brief advice about, hey, if you're in your career, maybe in the middle of it somewhere, however you define it, and you need a little break, how, how do you take a mini retirement uh, and keep your family and keep everybody uh, together during that period? That, that's, that's a great way to put it. So I, I by the way, listened to the, the, uh, the Dan Pekowski, um uh, I, I loved that episode. Um, I've been into kind of this whole, you know, fire movement before it was the fire movement. It was, you know, early retirement extreme. It was all of this um, idea of it kind of extreme saving and kind of putting off, um, you know, kind of the immediate gratification, um, you know, live, what was it? Live today like no one else so that you can live tomorrow like no one else. And that's kind of a Dave Ramsey thing. Um, that's kind of where I got my start is, uh, is, uh, is Dave Ramsey, total money makeover started on a, a book. I think we should, let's just define fire for everyone that, that, oh, that stands for yes. financial independence, retire early. Uh, and it's kind of like a, yes. a movement, a, maybe a cult. I don't know. It just, it's, it, kind of, it's, it has strong feelings. I, I would it's, say it's, it's definitely a movement and, and it can be cultish. At times. It's like, it's like, um, personal fi finance vegans, like, <laughs> everyone's like i'm a vegan and then someone says oh really what kind of candy do you like and you're like oh i like sour patch kids and they're like then you're not a vegan that's not vegan so there's even like you know if you go to reddit there's like fat fire and lean fire oh my gosh like, oh there's like some, de yeah. derivatives oh, yeah. i didn't know oh, this yeah. okay oh yeah fat if you're in fat fire then you're a high net worth high income individual that's not me I'm just in kind of like the lowly, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more than lean fire. Lean fire is like uh, you live in a van down by the river and you okay. call yourself financially independent. I, I don't believe in that. That's that works if you are single and want to remain single for the rest of your life. So back to your question, how do you do it with a family is you have to basically start by understanding and, you know, what your spouse and you think money is because money is nothing but paper. But it means something to each person. And if you don't understand what money symbolizes or means to you and you don't know what it means to your spouse, I mean, most marriages end over that. Most marriages end because you don't agree on how money should be spent or allocated in the marriage or just secrecy around, you know, someone has a secret account or whatever, all that kind of stuff. It gets back to what does it mean for you? And I think, you know, in order to kind of take these mini retirements, the first thing that I had to do was explain to my wife that I wasn't crazy. Um, <laughs> and then also talk about why it was important to me. And, and for me, money always meant um, freedom. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, the most valuable thing that you have in this world is time. It's the one thing that you can't make. You can make money. 
but you can't make time. And when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to say, oh, I wish I had 500 more dollars. You're going to say, I wish I had, you know, five more minutes. And so when you think of life in that way and, and you appreciate the gift that it is, you have to treat it that way. And you have to say, OK, am I going to trade my entire life so that one day I have this dream of being able to, you know, be in my 70s and I can do whatever I want? Well, that assumes you're going to make it to 70. And so I started kind of saying, well, right now I'm healthy enough um, to do the things that I want to do. So why am I going to chance it and wait 20 more years and hope that I'm still in good health to do the things I want to do now? So what I started to do is say, well, how much money did I actually need to take a year off and figure out what that number is? And then I got very aggressive about saving money. And, you know, Brandon, you've known me for a long time. You, you are actually one of the main influences around why I was able to do it because you turned me on to mint.com. And and here, I'm going I'm to tie this into security. Just as we were saying, the first step in talking to the executives is inventorying all your assets and where, where um, you have things going in and out. That's the same thing you have to do with personal finance. If you don't know where your money's going, if you can't track it, there's no way you can ever get on that journey. You have to know, like I did, that I was spending $500 a month at Starbucks before you realize it's smarter to just buy an espresso machine and call it a day. Right. So, uh, you know, once you kind of get to that, that first stage of knowing where your money is, it really is important to get your spouse on the same page with you. And, and that means saying, you know, for me, money was freedom. For her, money meant security. And then aligning together why those feelings were tied to money, where they come from, and we did this over like a, you know, a, a, an evening. We, we kind of went in our separate rooms. I said, you know, here's, here are different budget items. Let's rank them one to 10 of what we think are most important. And it's everything from vacations to paying for kids' education to um, entertainment, you know, whatever the things are. Um, she took her list and I took my list. We didn't talk. We went to separate rooms and we came back and our lists were identical except my number one was her number 10 and her number 10 was my number one. Oh, wow. Wow. And once, yeah. And once we talked it over about why they were our top and bottom, we realized that we actually had the same ideas, but we expressed them in different ways. You know, she always felt like I want to be able to go to a place and be able to not have to worry about if I have enough money to cover the thing I'm going to purchase. So for her, it was about security. I thought that meant she just wants to spend money. Right. Right. That's mm -hmm. how men sometimes translate things like, right. oh, she just wants to spend a lot. She wants to spend all this money. I don't want to spend all that money. We're we're in, we're in opposition when, in fact, we were actually saying the same thing. Right. I just looked at it from a, the perspective of of freedom. I wanted the ability to not feel like I was tied to an employer that ultimately told me how I was going to live my life. And I wanted the ability to say, uh you know, at some point, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and take some time off or I'm not going to do the thing that you're asking me to do because I know it's not right for the customer or it's not right for the business or it's not right for me personally. And when you don't have money and you're in debt, it's hard to do that. It's hard to have integrity when you know that you need the next paycheck. And for me, the best thing was getting out of being a paycheck to paycheck person and really focusing on, you know, the our MPE, the mortgage payoff event that we yes. talked about years yep. ago, uh -huh. that that was a major milestone that happened in 2011 for me. Um, 
and and it really accelerated everything else after that. Once you don't have a mortgage payment or car payments, the world changes. It's a different world. Um, I don't carry any debt other than what's on my monthly credit card and it gets paid off every month. Right. I don't carry debt for anything. Period. So all of this then has, I mean, I think this is what uh, the payoff, if you will, and this kind of is yeah. both is basically the freedom. And I know, you know, I've known you uh, off and on for, I don't know, however many years now. It's like, you've taken some points where it's, uh, you haven't necessarily done anything lavish, but you've taken some periods where it's like a lot of it's like be at home, be around the family more, you know, stay in, you know, enjoy your community more, be, you know, attend the school functions and stuff like yeah. that. So, um, and I, that's kind of the part I, I really wanted people to kind of like, you know, kind of, if you will, like, you know, Dan's point uh, was all about like, you know, the ability to go travel and do stuff. And yeah. I think that's, I mean, I totally get that. That's fantastic. Yep. Um, but there is, you know, the that. flip side of it is, um, you know, the freedom to choose, have more choices about where you work, when you work and when you have family time. That's, I think something people don't talk about as much, but I know that's something that, you know, again, all of, all of the things you've done has, has really allowed that to happen for yourself. I think it starts with, um, um, marrying someone that you like. <laughs> Profound statement there. I, mean, a, I, I mean, don't know that, if that, that's going to get a lot of controversy. That, I bet. It, it is. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say something controversial. If you like your family, you might want to do something similar. Uh-huh. If you don't like your family, this may not be as appealing to <laughs> take, you. Take on more debt. Be out of town yeah. all the time, every and, week. And, and what's great is, what's great is, is that coronavirus has given everyone a taste of the mini retirement life and what it is. Because you're at home with your spouse all day, and you'll find out really quickly whether you like them or not. You can love them. <laughs> like Loving someone is a choice. Right. You can choose to love someone. You can say, I'm going to love this person with their flaws no matter what, but you may not like them. I love right? it. You may not yeah. like them. Yeah, no, and, I think there's some truth there. I think I know what you're saying. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think maybe I do know what you're saying on that. So, All right, well, listen, this is what we're going to do. Well, I, I'm going to, after this show... Uh, you're going to send me one of your favorite couple links on the on the fire movement, and we'll throw those in the show notes so people can, if they're interested, they can go see mm. what it takes. Because there's lots of, I mean, there's lots of opinions out there. So we'll give, uh, yeah, you can get, kind of get them going. And you probably know uh, as a listener, like if you're if you're someone that wants to do it, but it can be done. Squire's uh, a success story of it. Um, but uh, but you're back back working right now. So I if am. people yeah. want advice uh, at, on personal finance, or more importantly, they want to maybe get some help from you on security. Uh, where are you working right now and how should someone find you out on, on the internets, as we say? Uh, so I actually am now at a company called Cloud Entity and our focus, it, it's a little different than what I've been doing because most of my career has kind of been on the, um, the identity side of the house. And this is now actually more in the access management side of the house, but it deals more with API level authorization. So kind of similar to what I was talking about before. If you think about um, today, most apps are going out at lightning fast speeds. It's all API service to service communication is kind of where everything's going. And and so just like, um, you know, businesses are chasing new opportunities where they're sharing data that's internal, traditionally internal uh, with partners, it becomes a new attack vector, right? I mean, you're going to see more and more API-based attacks in in the coming years. It's going to be the predominant way that people are going to be attacked, rather than than uh, than the traditional ways they have been today. So, uh, you know, this company. Uh, what was interesting to me is, uh, you know, our old buddy Jason Meese is the CEO, and uh, he called me up when when I was uh, on one of my mini retirements and said, 
uh, hey, I'm working at this new place. There's actually some really cool stuff going on here. The tech's legit. Um, and and there's some some big opportunities. And so I started looking into it. And, and I'll be honest, one of the things that I, that I thought was most interesting is, is just one of the use cases uh, around open banking. So I don't know if you know much about open banking or just kind of the whole open data no. exchange concept, but it's the idea of saying, let's find a way. Um, we have a certain set of requirements, security requirements, rules, regulations around how um, financial institutions will open, expose, and share data across typically customer data with a third party so that they can enable more services. The best example of this, and we'll bring it full circle, is Mint.com. So if you think about how Mint.com works is you go in and you link up all of your bank accounts, your credit cards to this service, and then it, it can um, list your transactions, and then you can kind of get an idea of, of where your money is being spent. But the way that it has worked traditionally is um, you have to provide a username password. It logs in as you to those banks and screen scrapes. Right. That's kind of what's going on. So in the world of open banking, that is no longer required. Um, and it gets past some of the problems with um, whenever the banks update their websites right, the or TFA, their APIs. Yeah, yeah it all and breaks, codes right? and everything. Yep. Yeah. So what this does is it allows you to kind of there's a standard that allows companies to kind of uh, share uh, information with customer consent. So. The product the set that we have is built all around a set of microservices that are cloud native. So as everything's moving to the cloud, um, it's kind of very timely that these guys started out in a microservices um, framework building everything so that you can simply just have a central policy enforcement that is all centralized. Um, it can have all of the different um, regulations defined for whatever industry, whether it's uh, financial services, healthcare, retail, whatever it may be, and then have localized enforcement points. So it can be deployed in, you know, uh, um, in a sidecar on uh, Docker. Uh, so it can sit right next to any application in force. So what they did is they kind of, they took the standard problem with, with security, which is we were always chasing down app vulnerabilities and problems after the app was deployed. And instead, they started to shift security left and said, well, how do we get into the DevOps pipeline and build in a set of consumable tools that developers can just say, oh, I want to secure and have policies on my application, but I don't know what they are. I don't know how to write it, and I'm not going to roll my own. I'll just go ahead and plug into this, and then I'll externalize it. And now a business person or um, an internal auditor or uh, information security uh, person can write those policies and change them in enforcement in real time. Starting to so that's kind of, yeah. So right. to me, it was it was interesting. It was new, it was different than what I was doing before. But um, once again, it's it's the same thing, right? It's Yeah, well, I think it's, 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 it's like you said before, problems. right? Um, you know, sometimes it, it comes from people, but now the new thing is APIs, right? And everybody's yeah. trying to figure out all of the stuff. And as more and more API companies embrace more and more APIs, the identity management problem follows. It's always at the that's end. Right. That's right. It always follows, follows along. It's so, all, all right. So that's the right. site is, what's the URL? It's a cloud entity.com. Is that right? Yes. Yes. All right. Cloudentity.com. And, and um, we will put a, a link to that in the show notes and we'll also yep. put a link to your LinkedIn. Uh, if uh, people want to contact you there and then, you know, I'll put a link to your Twitter, but like as all the security people I interview, it's like, 
Security people never really have any active presence on, on, no. on any social media. It kind of goes no. hand in hand. So I'll put it in there, but probably you need to reach out to Squire on LinkedIn. Yeah, I, and, uh, I, and I find will not see what you say on Twitter <laughs> for months, and I won't respond. And if I do, it'll be something really idiotic. That's right. Um, that's right. It will have the, nothing to do with security. That's right. Every but security person, to, no one yeah. ever has any good social media. It's always yeah. kind of funny. So. But if you want to talk to me about personal finance, then then yes, then I'll I'll uh, <laughs> I'll give you my my. Uh, your super secret personal my, finance. My super secret, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, Squire. Well, thanks a lot for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And for everyone else, if this is the first time uh, you've ever heard a software defined talk, well, welcome. You can probably subscribe right now by just scrolling back in your uh, podcast player and hit subscribe, or you can go to www.softwaredefinedtalk.com. There, we, uh, you can join the Slack. We've got a bunch of social media. We've got a bunch of links to all kinds of podcast players if you want to just click on a link. And if you want a Software Defined Talk sticker, this is all you got to do. You just got to send me your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com, and I will be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And with that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.